Julie, I think the challenge for any financial professional during, you know, times of market volatility is what do I actually say to my client? How do I communicate simple concepts? And I think in a recent conversation we had with John McKay, uh, the question you asked him about what email would you send to clients? I thought it was a great question. And I really appreciated his response because I love those practical ideas, even given by, uh, you know, a market strategist, really helpful during times like we're experiencing. Absolutely. I think he reminded us that when we're steeped in these topics and themes day in and day out, sometimes the way we articulate it to peers or colleagues is very different than what we might want to share with clients. And obviously we know our clients want us to educate them and connect them to resources. But I think taking a moment to really think about that behind the scenes and maybe even have others read it uh, for clarity and to make sure that it's sending the message that we want is such a great best practice. And I'm really excited to hear more of what John has to share with us today. I really think that, uh, you know, when we think about how long it's been since many of us have lived in an inv inflationary environment, uh, man, it goes back a while. And I think, you know, when we even think one step further about decisions we make or help our clients make, uh, investing decisions. It's been a long time since we've had to think about the impact of inflation and even talking about risks of recession, threats to growth, rising interest rates. It's like a whole new game out there right now. Absolutely. And think about the financial professionals that have have recently started their practice or joined the industry and that truly haven't gone through this type of market cycle. These are new muscles that they're flexing and conversations that just haven't been had. And I think uh, digging in and, and doing the research, but also crafting that message and, and making sure that there's clarity in communication is so important, especially right now. And now let's dive into the podcast with John Mackay and hear what he has to say. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. John Mackay is the head of sales, wealth management solutions, at Schroeder's Investment Management, which involves working in partnership with Hartford Funds to represent Schroeder's strategies to financial professionals and intermediaries. He joined Schroeder's in 2016 and is based in New York. John was a senior market strategist at Morgan Stanley from 2009 to 2016, which involved providing advice to the firm's sales force and clients on a variety of investing topics. He authored in-depth reports and traveled frequently throughout the Americas to meet with high net worth individuals and middle market institutions. Prior to this, he was a credit strategist at Citigroup Smith Barney from 2000 to 2009, which involved providing commentary on the credit markets and coming up with trade ideas for the high yield emerging markets and investment grade corporate bond desks. He also worked as an analyst at Emerging Market Securities, LLC, from 97 to 99, which involved creating structured trade credit transactions. John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Well, John, you, you come to the podcast at a very interesting time. The financial professionals who, uh, who participate on the podcast and listen are probably hearing more and more uh, inquiries from their clients about the topic that 
seems like over the last two months really came out of nowhere. Some would argue they saw it coming, but nonetheless, it's been headline material. And that's the topic of inflation. And I guess to, to lead off our conversation today, John, what is Schroeder saying about inflation and its impact on the markets? Sure. And to your point, John, inflation has been a hot topic uh, ever since we sort of emerged from the darkest days of the pandemic, given fiscal stimulus, um, given constraints on supply chains, um, and given the quick recovery in labor markets, not just here in the U.S., but also around the world. And the argument was really around whether it was transient and we would go back to an inflation environment that we experienced leading up to the pandemic, which was very, very low, sort of a disinflationary environment, or if it would remain high and persistent. And I think everyone's realized that it is high and persistent. And the two primary drivers behind it, in our view, at Schroeder's are wage inflation. Once you pay a worker a higher wage, you can't take it back. And a lot of companies have been forced to do that to get people to come back in and work in factories, stores, um, offices, et cetera, as well as housing. Uh, there's been a huge demand shift in the housing market. And um, housing inflation is a huge component of core inflation. And that, we think, is going to remain a driver of higher inflation over time as well. When we talk about inflation, we're not talking about runaway, scary inflation that you see in some emerging market countries or that we experienced here in the U.S. in the late 1970s. But we are talking about a higher inflationary environment than we experienced over the last 10 years or even over the last 20 plus years. Um, and that will have implications for interest rates. That will have implications for equities across the cap structure, uh, both domestic equities and global equities. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But it is, in our view, a regime change within the markets. John, we at Hartford Funds conducted a survey in conjunction with Caravan and Engine Insights uh, among about 908 consumers whose household income was 75000 or above, or their investable assets were 75000 and over between February 14th and February 16th of this year. You know, it's interesting. Our survey respondents said that uh, they were expecting, the majority were expecting two to three rate hikes this year. Uh, about 50% of respondents said that. About 14% said that they thought maybe there would be zero to one hike. 16% uh, said four to five hikes. And then 5% estimated six to seven. Obviously, none of our crystal balls are perfectly clear, and I'm sure you're receiving this question day in and day out. But given the current landscape, what what is your thought on the number of hikes that we'll see and, and how that will unfold uh, throughout this year? Sure. So central banks, um, maybe just to define what a central bank's function is, it, for the Fed, they have two mandates. It's to maximize employment and to ensure stable inflation, effectively control inflation over the long run. They have sort of an unstated third mandate, which is to, is to ensure stable financial conditions. Some people call that the Fed put, meaning that if financial markets sell off rapidly or they sell off um, to a big degree, the Fed will step in and sort of either talk the markets into um, you know, stopping the sell-off or ease policy um, so that markets stop their sell-off. That is not their primary mandate. And so what we think the Fed is going to do is they're going to start hiking rates in March. Um, the market is currently pricing in six rate hikes this year. So those respondents that were in that five to six um, rate hike camp, I think it was about 5% of them were at least in line with where the markets are pricing in. Um, and I think, you know, 
that is the trajectory we'll be on for the next several years. Once they start hiking, it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, given the high levels of inflation we are currently experiencing, some people would argue that the Fed is actually behind the curve. They should have started this already. We think that's a little bit off base. If the Fed does things too quickly, if they tighten financial conditions too rapidly, which is the function of hiking rates, you risk putting the economy back into a recession. They certainly don't want to risk doing that. So we think four hikes this year is a reasonable expectation, a little bit lower than what the market is currently pricing in. But it would be four hikes this year accompanied by additional hikes next year and probably additional hikes the year after. So very much in the tightening regime. Uh, which again, back to John's original question, obviously will have an impact on the economy and it will have an impact on the markets. So John, as I think back to uh, those storied times of inflation back in the 1970s, I think I'm probably about the typical age of your typical financial professional. And uh, what I remember about inflationary times was waiting in the back of my mom's Corvair as we waited to fill our gas tank on odd or even days, right? Based on our license plate numbers. So my question, John, is that I think many financial professionals, especially those who are uh, not really in the analytical part of the practice, but in the client facing, we know the challenges of higher costs on our clients, right? And, and trying to stretch those retirement dollars, you know, to give them the retirement that they need. But if I could back you up for a second to talk about um, maybe inflation and its impact on various asset classes like you read that hey equities are usually a, a decent place to be and when i say this I, I do it within the context of understanding we put together balanced portfolios for our clients however if we were to look at the different sectors what is the risk of inflation from an analytical standpoint in terms of owning equities owning fixed income and owning uh, perhaps commodities or, or other things that may not always be represented in a client's portfolio. Sure. So, I mean, the irony is, I mean, you talk about your childhood sitting in the back of your mother's car. So we're talking about the 1970s, very, very early 1980s. Inflation started to come down as Paul Volcker hiked interest rates to incredibly high levels um, to tighten financial conditions and stop that wage price spiral, as well as just the the price spiral that you saw across a variety of different goods, um, energy being one of the biggest ones. Um, and when prices are moving higher, it eats into the spending power uh, that you have in your bank account or you have in your wallet or that a company earns. So if you think about financial instruments, bonds or equities, if an equity can earn enough revenue at a pace that's higher than the rate of inflation, it could do well. So that's the point you made. Equities can be a reasonable inflation hedge as long as inflation isn't running away at at um, unreasonable levels. Um, fixed income really struggles in that environment. You're getting a fixed coupon payment every six months, sometimes every quarter, sometimes annually, depending on the structure of the bond. Um, and if prices are moving higher, that fixed coupon payment isn't enough to pay for those higher prices. And so, you know, bonds can struggle in that environment. There are certain types of bonds that have a, what we call a floating rate, where the rate of interest you get, receive rises with a benchmark like T-bills or Fed funds or something like that. Um, so those can be the kinds of instruments that can do okay in an inflationary environment. Um, but commodities are the best inflation hedge you can find. You pull a material out of the ground that's priced almost instantly and you sell it for 
the cost of that material plus a little bit of a premium for the cost of pulling it out of the ground, whether that's energy, whether that's industrial materials, whether that's gold, which doesn't really have a utility use, but is viewed as a pretty good inflationary hedge. So commodities would be the best hedge. The other way to think about the equity market is um, while some companies are going to be able to absorb those higher prices and, you know, that will result in higher revenues and it won't impact their earnings too much and they should hold up okay, is what's your starting point? What is the price you're paying for those future earnings and how susceptible either negatively or positively are those earnings to higher prices? There are some companies, this is an easy one, energy companies, and I'm speaking in generalities here, there are going to be some good and some bad energy companies that obviously will be beneficiaries from higher um, energy prices and so could do well in an inflationary environment. There are going to be other sectors that just don't have that pricing power and are going to struggle a little bit. So I think it's a it requires a complete rethink of how you allocate to equities. And maybe the playbook over the past 10 years is not going to be the playbook going forward over the next 10 years. John, it's interesting, you know, when you think about inflation and purchasing power, I know that unfortunately I'm one of those individuals that tends to memorize prices of things when I go to a store for whatever reason it sticks. And so I know just yesterday I w went to the store and I just noticed just, you know, things are so much more expensive. And when you're chatting with financial professionals and their clients, as I know you do on a daily basis, what is the sort of mental and emotional impact that this has on individuals? And, and what are your thoughts on that just as we, you know, as consumers and, and kind of engaging in, in purchasing just daily items that seem to be so much more expensive, you know, practically overnight? Well, you're very different than me, Julie. I have no idea what I paid for a gallon of milk last week, and I should probably start paying attention. <laughs> uh, my wife certainly does. So I think it's I would break curse. the consumer up into... It, it, it sounds like it is. Um, I would break the consumer up into different cohorts. So the consumer in general is in the best shape we've seen from a financial perspective in over 40 years. Household debt to income ratios are at 40 year lows. We are seeing wage growth, not quite enough to keep up with the pace of inflation yet, but it is increasing in pace. Lower income consumers are unfortunately going to be the hardest hit by higher prices at the gas station, higher prices at the uh, grocery market, and higher prices for things like clothes, um, basic goods, heating your house, cooling your house, et cetera. Um, we are seeing wage growth in that cohort, but nowhere near enough to offset. Um, the higher basket of, um, of prices of goods that you know, we need on a daily basis. Higher income consumers probably don't have to worry all that much. Maybe at the margin, it impacts their discretionary spending. You take one less vacation, you go out to one less fancy dinner. Um, but in my conversations with advisors and clients, it's that cohort that probably doesn't talk about inflation that much. They probably talk about it more in terms of the impact on their portfolio but it is the middle to lower income consumers that are really starting to feel the pinch um, from higher prices. And that's, you know, that's an area that we're keeping a close eye on because consumer spending, as we all know, is a huge um, component of U.S. economic growth at 70 percent plus, And everyone contributes to that to varying degrees. So if it really starts to impact the spending power of lower income and then moves up the chain to middle and higher income consumers, then we could have an economic growth problem on our hands, but we're not there yet. John, it's interesting. I want to shift the topic a little bit to the topic of market volatility, because earlier this week when I was doing a, a client event, there was one couple that came early and uh, the gentleman looked at me and said, 
how much longer are we going to have to put up with this? And I kind of laughed. I, I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, this market, this market's killing my retirement funds. And uh, this topic of volatility, I know, uh, obviously, there are many factors that go into it, inflation being one of them, obviously. But it, the market volatility right now, do you think, how, how much do you think it's based on everybody guessing at what the Fed's going to do? How many rate rises? How much are they going to do? And, and I guess from Schroeder's standpoint, give it any feel for how long this volatility is going to last. I know the market hates uncertainty. Are we anywhere near any kind of certainty on anything these days? Uh, John, I wish I could give you a day and a time. Uh, I would expect volatility to remain higher until the market has a better sense of the pace of rate hikes from the Fed and what the final terminal rate, meaning what's the what's the end number they get to? Right now they're at zero. Do they stop hiking rates at one and a half percent or two or two and a half percent down the road? The higher that number is, by the way, the better, all else equal. Um, that means that the economy is in good enough shape to absorb those higher rate hikes. Um, and inflation is high, but it's not running rapidly out of control. Um, the other thing to remember to your um, to the um, person you were speaking to earlier this week is that we came out of an unbelievably low volatility environment that was helped by a lot of fiscal stimulus, a lot of market participation, as well as um, monetary stimulus. So the Fed has not only been cutting interest rates or had interest rates at zero, they've also been buying securities to the tune of $80 billion per month in the market, which provides a lot of liquidity to the market. They're heading in the other direction. So I'd think about it like turning a giant cruise ship or a tanker at sea. When you're heading into the waves, it limits the volatility of that ride. When you turn broadside to the waves, which is what the Fed is doing right now, you're going to take a couple of hits to the side and it's going to increase the volatility. And some people are going to get seasick or I don't know what the equivalent thereof is in the markets. But, um, you know, it creates more volatility until we get certainty. We can start heading in the other direction. The other piece of the puzzle is valuations. So heading into the end of this year, the S&P 500 was at incredibly high valuations. Um, not the highest we've ever seen, nothing outrageous, but not high, not at a reasonable enough level to deal with tighter financial conditions, which eat into or um, raise the premium through which you would want to pay for future earnings growth. And so that's what the market's adjusting to right now. There will be an endpoint. There'll be a time at which there is enough um, of, a, of a risk premium priced into risk assets, meaning you're getting enough um, compensation for buying uncertainty heading into a tighter financial uh, markets, tighter financial conditions in the markets, um, that it's reasonable and that will subdue uh, the volatility that we've seen. But it's that adjustment phase, that turning broadside to those waves of the Fed, valuation, et cetera, that the market's um, trying to deal with right now. So there will be an end day. My guess is it's in the next couple of months, um, but I don't know exactly how much longer it's going to last. You know, it's funny, John. I don't think in the time we've been together today that we've even mentioned the word COVID or pandemic, um, which obviously for the last two years, that's I'm sure you're just exhausted from saying those words in terms of your, your commentary and, and conversations. I mentioned that survey that we performed a few minutes ago, and it's when, when investors were surveyed on you know what was what most worried them about their portfolio performance going forward um it's it's interesting covid ranked fairly low on the list 
And I'm just curious from your perspective, where are we in terms of the pandemic and its impact on the global markets and inflation? And, and how does that factor in? Obviously, it's something that we have all heard about and are maybe growing a little bit numb to over the last couple of years. And is that rightly so? Or will you give us some guidance on uh, on COVID and, and where you see that headed? I've got, I've got to put on my uh, my doctor's hat now and, and pretend yes, to please, be a, please uh, do. Yes. a virologist. Oh. Dr. Mackay. Uh, so <laughs> not, not going to speak with any degree of certainty about this because we've been bitten before. New variants obviously could emerge um, that are, you know, that, that aren't, um, you know, that, that the vaccines, you know, can't, can't take care of. Something could come out of left field, I guess, is my point. Um, it seems more likely, though, that we've had we we're heading very much into the endemic phase of the pandemic, meaning governments are starting to loosen restrictions with the understanding that you're either at a level of vaccine provided immunity or you, you know, you've got enough of your population that has already contracted the coronavirus that they have built in immunity to what we currently know about the virus. So like I said, as long as there's not another variant that um, is able to evade the vaccines, I think we're heading into a period of time where it unfortunately will be with us. It seems like flu is forever, um, but it won't be the primary topic or of conversation, let alone the primary driver of markets or economies. We're not quite there yet. It's not, you know, breathe a huge sigh of relief. COVID is completely behind us. There are still countries that are dealing with it. Hong Kong, for example, is dealing with a pretty big outbreak right now. Um, but I do think we're past the worst of it, and it'll be a return to focus on things like inflation. What is the Fed doing? What's the path of earnings? What's the path of wages? What's the path of economic growth around the world? John, if I can go back to asset classes for just a moment and thinking about U.S. investors, uh, during inflationary times, uh, is there more of a case to be made for uh, for overseas investing, uh, for foreign investment? in both the, the equity or credit markets. And then just specifically, uh, what is Schroeder saying about the credit portion of a client's portfolio right now? I mean, I always look at times like this as saying, you know, nobody seems to think about, you know, bond diversification. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, floating rate securities as, as one type, but is now a good time to do a review, not only of the equity holdings, but also the credit securities in a client's portfolio? So we're actually pretty comfortable with credit writ large, meaning the fundamentals of companies in the U.S. as well as overseas are actually very, very strong. Um, they've had plenty of access to liquidity, so they've been able to refinance um, higher interest rate debt, lower their cost of capital. Um, earnings for companies, not just in the U.S., but around the world are pretty good as well. So that allows those companies to generate enough earnings to pay you know, their debt loads and um, you know, not raise the risk of defaults. And that's your biggest you know, that's your biggest risk when you're investing in credit. So we're very comfortable with credit. The risk to fixed income and credit specifically is how much duration do you have in your portfolios? Um, and so I think that's the biggest need for review across clients' books of business is duration has extended over the last 10, 15, 20 years. You've seen the Barclays Ag using that as a proxy. You used to have a duration of around four and a half years. It's closer to six and a half today. Um, so duration is extended, which means if interest rates rise, which we expect them to, um, that's going to eat into your return over time. So if you can think about asset classes like floating rate loans or non-agency securitized, where you have a floating component to your, um, to your interest rates, your income, 
that can help mitigate some of the risks that you might have in your portfolios. But I think it's less about default risk and more about duration risk these days. While we're talking that, let's talk equity. So, uh, and the reason I wonder about uh, overseas international investing is that I think that the, maybe the assumption is that emerging markets economies are largely commodities based and maybe they'll do better in the kind of an inflationary environment uh, is, I hate to generalize because every period is different, but what is Schroeder saying right now about the international markets? And, and even if you have to be more specific about international, and then maybe part B of that question is, how should we be thinking about emerging market risk right now? Sure. So I'll answer that question in two ways. One from a just broad international perspective. I would think about it from a valuation perspective. So international equities trade cheap relative to the US, whether it's Europe, Japan, or emerging markets. If we're in a rising interest rate environment, that means the discount rate you apply to future earnings um, is going to be higher. And that means that people are going to be paying more attention to what is the path of future earnings growth and how much am I willing to pay for that today? In a low growth environment, an environment where interest rates are at zero, people are willing to take on a little bit more risk and pay for earnings that might be two, three, maybe even five years out in the future. So think about some of the glamour stocks that have done really well here in the US, new businesses, new technology, disruptive companies uh, that people sort of fell in love with and have you know, unfortunately come back down to earth as people realize, well, maybe it's not worth paying a very high price for a company that hasn't generated earnings today. A lot of European um, uh, as Southeast Asian, whether it's Japan or the emerging countries within Southeast Asia, are businesses that are, quite frankly, fairly boring. They're energy companies, they're industrial companies, they're telecom companies, they're banks. Um, they trade with cheap evaluations because they're not that exciting. Um, and they have very robust future earnings growth. Again, I'm speaking in generalities. There are going to be some good, bad, and sort of indifferent companies within those markets. But I think if you think about the makeup of those markets, there's more of those companies over there in those indices than there are here in the US. So we are pretty bullish on international markets. The second piece, the second answer to your question is about commodities in general. We think we're in a in the early innings of a commodity super cycle for one very primary reason. That is um, better economic growth is part of it, but also lack of supply, whether it's energy, industrial metals, or even soft commodities like wheat, soybeans, barley, um, coffee, um, cotton, um, there just hasn't been enough money put into generating those goods, uh, those materials over the last 10 years because you had a commodities bear market. So as growth improves, demand increases, supply is not going to catch up to meet it. And so commodity prices are going to do well. You can either invest directly in commodities or you can invest in companies that pull those materials out of the ground or generate those goods um, and sell it on. Again, a lot of those are in um, uh, international markets. And to your point earlier, John, there are some commodity producing countries where literally that's all they do, um, whether it's soft commodities or energy or industrial metals. So those could be good opportunities as well. John, obviously, we have covered a lot of territory today. And as I hear all of the different themes and topics that you've shared and how they evolve minute by minute, given, you know, the day and the time of day that we're in, you know, for financial professionals that that John Deal and I talk with every single day, 
that's one of the biggest challenges is the volume and velocity of information that is flowing into them and their team and coordinating that and then consistently putting out messaging to clients and you know delivering that great client experience. How do you and your team filter through the information, especially right now during periods of great volatility, um, and really kind of process that and make sure that you're on top of it, communicate internally in order to put messages out externally. Are, are there any tips that you can share for how you do that? Because obviously you're very successful and I know that that is certainly a, a hot topic for financial professionals day in and day out. Uh, that's a great question, Julie. And you make me think about how I do it. <laughs> like there's some grand plan. <laughs> So the, the best piece of advice I can give is to, is to write it down. So if something's happening in the markets, uh, markets are selling off, markets are rallying, there's a sector or a piece of the portfolio that's struggling, write down what you think is happening and how you would convey that to your clients. It, to me, it's a, it's a great rule. When I used to work in research um, earlier in my career, you would write a note and the way I write is I essentially put all my thoughts on a piece of paper and then I go back and edit it and make sure that it's digestible to wherever the end consumer is. And I found that still a great rule of thumb. So with my team, if something's happening in the markets or we want to get a message out, I force everyone on the team that's going to lead that uh, messaging to write it, share it with the team. We'll add our thoughts to it. We'll help edit it and make sure that it is remembering who the audience is. Um, is this understandable to you know, someone who may not spend every minute, every hour of the day looking at the financial markets and trying to interpret little minute pieces of data. And you can get lost in that data um, very, very quickly. So that's what we try to do. That's our rule of thumb. Um, if you put something in writing, it's a great way to make sure that your message is coherent and understandable. John, before we wrap up, I'd be amiss if, uh, if I didn't at least ask about the impact of geopolitical events, right, overall on economic growth and inflation and so on and so forth. You know, in recent days, uh, Ukraine has certainly been in the headlines, but there are always geopolitical risks. It seems like I remember a few years ago we had a we had a presentation that called It's Always Something. Uh, at Schroeder's, how do you how do you incorporate the, the geopolitical risk? Like, how do you begin to assess uh, what that is. And, and, you know, even in it's, if it is always something, then, you know, how do we ever evaluate the impact on inflation, economic growth, and really the future of markets? It's a great question, John. And, and my response uh, this time a year ago would have been ignore geopolitics. To your point, there's always something, there's always a big headline um, that tries to grab your attention. And, most of the time, it has little to no impact on the economy, whether it's the global economy or a country-specific economy or the markets. Uh, the Russian-Ukraine situation is a little bit different just because of the impact on inflation. Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to pretend to be a, a Russia-Ukraine uh, political or geopolitical expert. Um, but it could exacerbate trends that were already in place, meaning you could get a, um, a surge higher in inflation because of energy and commodity prices going up. You could get a slower um, pace of economic growth. We thought growth was going to slow down um, globally this year, still be at a very, very uh, robust level, but slow down. It could slow down even further and it could also raise the risk premium in markets given the level of uncertainty. So very hard to analyze. Um, 
but I think most of the time it doesn't have much of an impact. This one is definitely different. And I think, unfortunately, um, given the events we've seen over the past couple of days, it will have an impact on inflation and it will have an impact on economic growth going forward. But marginally, I wouldn't get carried away here. We do not think it's going to lead to runaway inflation. We do not think it's going to lead to a global recession or a U.S. or a European recession, anything along those lines. But it will exacerbate the slowing down trend we've seen in uh, we expected in growth this year. John, we can't thank you enough for your thoughts and insight today. And I, I'm confident that the financial professionals joining us and listening will find it so insightful and helpful as they continue to deliver timely messages to their clients. You mentioned drafting that email, which I think is an incredible best practice, by the way. Um, if you were drafting an email, if you were sitting in a financial professional's chair looking to communicate some of these points to clients, say, tomorrow, what would some of the key points be on that uh, email? Uh, what, do, what do you think that uh, clients should really be thinking about or, or being educated on uh, given the current landscape? Sure. So I think some of the key points would be as follows. You, you need to stay invested, right? Um, you know, if you're investing for retirement, investing over the long run is the best way to ensure that you can generate enough income in retirement to live comfortably, live within your means. Um, but you need to rethink how you're investing. The playbook over the past 30 years has been some combination of, you know, long duration bonds will help you mitigate equity volatility as well as generate income. U.S. equities have done extraordinarily well over the past 10 years. You've had a disinflationary environment, and that regime shift means that you've got to rethink your bond portfolio. It still very much plays a role as ballast, but maybe the components you use are a little bit different. Use some floating rate, use some non-agency securitized shorter duration fixed income to help mitigate volatility and generate a little bit of income. And just rethink how you're allocated to equities. Um, U.S. equities are still going to do great, uh, we think, over the next three to five years. But there might be better opportunities in overseas markets. So it's not a dramatic shift. Um, it's just rethinking uh, where you're generating return and where you're mitigating risk within your portfolio versus what you might have done over the last 10 to 20 years. Well, John, as always, uh, thank you for your insight, especially during these times of, of volatility. I always want to say unprecedented volatility, but John, you and I both know that we've seen these periods in the past. We'll see them again in the future. Hence your point of long-term investing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so John, just on behalf of uh, Hartford Funds and all of the folks listening today, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for your insight. Thanks for the ideas that we can share with our, with our clients, because it's probably the most important thing during these times of volatility is make sure that we're communicating with our clients, giving them a couple of things to think about that maybe will will widen that that time lengthen, I should say, that time horizon to give them the perspective they need. So, John, always great talking to you. Thanks again. Thank you, John. Thanks so much, Julie and John. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.